0: Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming out tonight. I trust that you picked up a handout that are available in Narthex. So if you haven't gotten one, uh, I encourage you to, to pick one up. Tonight we are talking about preparing for spiritual battle, spiritual warfare. And I have, as an introduction, we need a proper perspective on spiritual warfare. There are a lot of fads that are experienced in our culture. Sometimes uh, there are fashion fads, and uh, bell-bottoms go in and out. I hear that they are coming back in again, very wide-bottom bell-bottoms. Movies, you name it. And uh, Christianity, unfortunately, uh, is not immune to... Some of the some fads, and there are spiritual fads. One of them has to do with spiritual warfare. Back in 1989, Frank Peretti wrote a book that had a lot of impact. It was a novel; it's fiction, and uh, it was entitled *This Present Darkness*. Published in 1989. Then he wrote Piercing the Darkness, and then he wrote The Prophet. These books sold over 10 million copies. Loads of people read them, and it was all about spiritual warfare. A fictional tale of a city that was coming under spiritual attack by the evil one. And uh, it would get very involved in terms of what that spiritual battle looked like, and there were territorial gods and all kinds of things that were in these fictional books that somehow found their way into the Christian realm and there became a lot of interest in spiritual warfare. And unfortunately, uh, some of the things that were said in these books were adopted somehow into talking about territorial gods and uh, the demons and going into speculation over which there is absolutely no foundation. But as I said, it became pretty widespread, pretty popular, so a lot of Christian books on spiritual warfare and clinics started to pop up, of going to a a clinic to learn how to fight the spiritual battle, how to take on the evil one. Well, in the midst of that kind of almost frenzy, if you will, uh, I was at Pinebrook, and A lady came up to me that I I didn't know. She was not from one of our churches, but uh, she was at Pine Brook, and she just came back from one of those clinics on spiritual warfare, and she was all excited, and uh, she was all worked up, and uh, I was the host pastor, so she came to me and said, Pastor, are you going to be running a clinic on spiritual warfare? And I said, "Uh, no, I don't uh, believe that I'll be doing that. And uh, she said, Oh, she said, that's so, so important. Uh, she said, I- I'm sure you've been to a clinic. And I said, No, I, I haven't. And she said, Well, you- you've at least read. And, and she talked about a couple of books. And I said, Well, no, I haven't. And uh, she looked slow, chagrined. And uh, she said, uh, Pastor, how in the world do you expect to know how to go about fighting spiritual warfare? And I said, that's a great question. I said, all I have is the Bible. I went right over her head, you know. I I said, no, all I have is the Bible. And she said, oh, that's too bad. (laughs) And uh, that kind of ended our our discussion. Well, I I say to you, we need to have a balance because sometimes the, the whole spiritual warfare thing is blown way, way out of proportion. Uh, the other danger is to underestimate the reality and the truthfulness as a reaction to it being blown out of proportion as though there is no such thing and it's inconsequential and it doesn't matter and, and you know that's for crazies and uh, for people of uh, different ilk. Well, the scripture says that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom they may devour. He's a very real being. There are Uh, angelic fallen angels that we refer to as demons they are at work and there is such a thing as spiritual warfare it's real and so tonight we want to talk about what does the Bible have to say about this subject of spiritual warfare we're in Ephesians chapter 6 the key verse is Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 finally Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That is the overarching thought. That is the main idea. That is the most important takeaway. We are to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So as we unpack that idea, we work our way through Ephesians chapter 6. And we begin with this idea. And that is the source of strength is to be the Lord ephesians 610 finally be strong in the Lord be strong in the Lord we're to be made strong in our relationship to the to the Lord the idea of becoming strong is to be able to do a, a certain thing uh, this is not the word for power that we often <coughs> think of in the scriptures which is the word dunamos in the Greek from which we get the word dynamite and uh, most often when the Bible's talking about power, it, it's talking about this dynamite, this, this incredible power of God. This word, however, has the idea of simply remaining strong. In the Lord, it's the sphere in which this strength comes. And the Lord's strength is a mighty strength, Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The word for strength in verse 2 is different from the word used in verse 1. Strength here means to have power or might. And the word might in this verse is a word that is often used to express internal fortitude. It is the might of one's resolve, a mighty resolve. It's a purposeful decision about how to live and how to conduct oneself. So we have made a decision to live for Christ, uh, to honor and glorify Him. It is that commitment that needs to be strengthened. It is that commitment that we need the Lord's help to accomplish. Uh, we cannot simply make resolutions about being faithful to God and expect that in our own might in our own power, in our own discipline, accomplish those resolves. We need the Lord's help to remain faithful to Him. That is the essence of this thought. Ephesians 6:11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the scheme of the devil. The outcome of the battle rests not on our skill and our strength, but on God's protection that he affords us. Now we move to the second thought, and that is how are we to be strengthened in the Lord? The believer is to dress himself, herself, in the protective body armor of God. It is the believer's responsibility to put on the armor of God, verse 11. It says, put on the whole armor of God. That is a command. That is something that we need to do. God is not going to clothe us with this, but we need to clothe ourselves in the armor of God. Secondly, the armor of God is the armor that God supplies. It is God's armor, if you will. Uh, A... It is not manufactured anywhere. It cannot be found at any site that sells ammunition and armaments. It is an armor that God alone supplies. And I have here, protective armor is a great help in conflict. We have heard and even seen the advantage that one gains through, for example, wearing a bulletproof vest. Uh, It's good to have armament Uh, in the medieval period. There were coats of armor that were made out of metal uh, to provide protection. And you've all seen the knights and uh, the helmets and the breastplates and all of that incredible armor. Well, the imagery here is that we are to put on a spiritual armor, not a physical armor, but we're to put on a spiritual armor to protect us from the onslaught of the evil one next the spiritual armor will provide one the ability to hold one's spiritual ground in the battle verse 11 put on the whole armor of god for this reason that you may be able to stand you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil to hold one's ground is not an offensive battle but a defensive battle so the picture here is of our being attacked. This is not our going out and attacking the evil one and taking ground from him, but rather it's talking about his attacking us, coming against us. So we're talking about defensive maneuvers here. And so this is a, an armament that God gives us so that the evil one's attacks against us can be resisted. Number two, it's not to take ground but rather not to surrender ground. The point is that we are not to surrender or give up that which is already ours in Christ. We are not to be moved in our commitment to Christ and His Word. The danger that, uh, that we are faced with is that we will in some way defect to the other side, that we will be taken prisoner, if you will, and we will not hold on to the truths of God's word with the fidelity and the faithfulness that we we should. That our commitment, our resolve to live for Christ can easily become undone, and we find ourselves sinning. We find ourselves doing that, Uh, which we should not do. Uh, Churches surrender ground spiritually in making doctrinal statements that are no longer faithful to the word of God, no longer hold to the deity of Christ, virgin birth, second coming, all those kinds of things. The point is we don't want to give up any of the truthfulness of God's word or our commitment to him. We are to hold fast to all that we confess. Uh, See, in this spiritual battle, there will be various types of assaults that the evil one will make. Ephesians 6.11 Put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So here, these schemes are uh, plans that the evil one has for moving us off-center, moving us away from faithfulness, fidelity to God and to his word. And there are many different attacks that Satan could use, uh, many different temptations that he can bring into our life, circumstances that uh, can be used to cause us to question, doubt, or desire something other than the will of God. So we must be mindful of the fact that there are these schemes. Number two, he works from both within the church and from without the church. The scripture refers to him as, uh, at times, uh, a wolf in sheep's clothing, uh, that he presents himself as one who is wanting to promote our spiritual well-being when in reality he is out to do us spiritual harm and cause us to be unfaithful to God and to his word. In the book of Acts, we have something that's very uh, significant for we have Paul's, Visit with the Ephesian elders. Remember, we're studying the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is obviously written to the people of Ephesus, and in Acts chapter twenty, we have the last encounter that Jesus, that uh, Paul has with the Ephesian elders. If you notice in Acts twenty seventeen and eighteen, it says, "Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church." to come to him. When they came to him he said to them, you yourselves know that I have lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. And jumping down to verse 28 he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseer. So the Ephesians elders have the primary responsibility of watching over, protecting the flock of God. That is the primary role of an elder today, to watch over and protect God's people, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Then Paul writes, says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So this is talking about those from the from without, who are going to come into the church, present themselves as being people of God, with the intent of doing spiritual harm. We need to understand that that's a reality. That's a reality, and uh, we see it happen time and time again in churches, in seminaries, in Christian and Bible colleges, in which. People come in uh, representing themselves as faithful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ who bring in destructive heresies, who begin to teach things that, that aren't true and undermine the faith of many. You always have to be on guard against those that present themselves as followers of Christ, but are going to be teaching and acting in such a way as they prove to be of spiritual harm to the evil one, uh, to uh, the believer. That's one major scheme that Satan has and there are many subsets to that scheme of how that works out. And then he says, in verse 30, and from among your own selves, will arise men speaking twisted things. Uh, p- things that aren't true. They will twist the truth. And notice it says in verse 30, from among your own selves. So we have this influence that comes from without, but even from within the church, even from among people who are actually born-again believers... Who, out of a desire to have prominence, start to twist the word of God. And here it's not so much that they bring something new or different, but they contort. I love that aspect of of twisting it. They, They take God's word and they turn it into saying something that it doesn't say. They're not even coming with a new prophecy. They're just taking what God's word says and then turning it on its head so that it says something quite different from what God's word actually says. So we always have to be on guard that what people are saying, even Christians, that what they're saying is in accordance with the truth. And notice that it's knowable. We live in a day and age of postmodernism that questions whether or not we can even know the truth, whether we can get to the bottom of what is true. There's truth for you, there's truth for you, and there's truth for me. Okay? And we hear such thing as alternate alternate truth, alternate facts. As though there's there's just an unending set of values and beliefs out there and who's to say what's right, who's to say what's wrong. And more and more I find is I read contemporary Christian books on doctrine that it moves away. We have moved away. I won't even say it's moving. We have moved away in the presentation of doctrinal truth in most formal settings from talking about what's true to presenting alternative viewpoints and you decide what's right. Rather than than talk about what the scripture teaches, we'll talk about four views, and uh, that's very popular today. Uh, contemporary view: What are four views of salvation? What are four true views of inerrancy? What are four views on the Lord's return? What are four views on that? So here's what some people say. Here's what other people say. Here's what somebody else says. Here's what still somebody else says. So. Read, decide for yourself, pick what you like, and make that your truth. What a scheme. There is right, there is wrong, there is truth, there is black and white. And we live in a day and age in which that sounds absurd, to talk that plain, that that there is right, there's wrong, there's black, there's white, there's truth, there's error. And yet, that's what we need to believe and to hold to. And we need to know the scripture well enough that we're able to defend the truth and answer those that would teach something that's contrary. To expose where it is that they have gone wrong, where they have departed from the word of God. What they say is inconsistent with what the word of God teaches. So it's a monumental task. In our culture, in our day. So you can see that there really needs to be God's help in defending and holding on to this place of truthfulness. And the book of Jude tells us that we are to contend for the faith, we are to fight for the faith. We're not just to relinquish it and say, well, who knows? what the truth is but we need to fight for the truth the once for all the scripture says uh, which is delivered for us D the evil one is the mastermind of the battle Ephesians 6.11 put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil so he is the mastermind behind us all. Number three, our battle is not a physical battle, but rather a spiritual battle. Ephesians six twelve. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers, over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Uh, I appreciated Honer's commentary, and so I I quote it here rather extensively uh, to help us to understand what some of this means. First, he says this, and I quote, "'In other words, the believer's struggle "'is not against human beings composed of flesh and blood, "'but is spiritual battle against spiritual enemies "'whom Paul lists as evil rulers and authorities.'" Let me just stop there. Because again, if there's anything that we need to keep before us, is this truth. Because the danger in which we live is to fail to see that there is a spiritual battle and to understand it only in physical terms. And when I say physical terms, I'm not talking about uh, bullets, and I'm not uh, talking about uh, airplanes, and I'm not talking about bombs, but what I am talking about is believing that what we are fighting are people. Their beliefs, their, their practices, their, their values. And the danger when you believe that is that you look for natural solutions rather than spiritual solutions. Okay. And uh, I believe that the biggest challenge for the Church of America in our day and age is politics. I believe that the Church is looking for political answers to spiritual problems. It's we've got to cast the right vote. It's we've got to have the, the right leader if we are ever going to be what God wants us to be. There's a spiritual battle. That's not going to be won at the ballot box. It isn't going to be solved by a particular leader. And we have to believe that there is an evil one who has schemes and that is the most important element of the battle. (laughs) There's more going on that meets the eye. And it's so easy to be influenced by our culture because that's not what the news media are looking at. The news media are not talking about a spiritual battle. The news media only talks in terms of the things that we see and the political realm in which we live. There's nobody other than the church that is talking about a spiritual battle. And I'm saying the church is talking less and less about the spiritual battle and looking more and more like the culture around us. So we really have to dig in our heels if we're going to be, be different. Uh, Timothy, I, we can go to so many passages of Scripture that talks about what we are to do in this particular day and age in which we live. And uh, if we want to live a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and honesty. It says we are to pray for those that are in authority. Uh, that we are to believe that the, the greatest power that we have is to pray for the person in authority. Interestingly enough, it doesn't tell us to pray for who is in authority. It tells us to pray for the one in authority, for God is able to to move the hearts of kings. He sets up. He removes kings. says that the way of the king is in his hands. So we're to be praying for our leaders. And asking God to do a work, overcome, override, and have his will accomplished in all things. Believing that God is greater than that which we see or touch. But there is this invisible world over which the evil one has a desire that needs to be thwarted. Moving on. Picking up in the middle of that paragraph. These powers already mentioned in 121 and 310 are most likely angelic leaders in league with the devil who is portrayed as the one who is the commander of the powers in the unseen world, 2-2. The evil one who controls the world, 1 John 5-19. And the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4:4. Then uh, I give credit to uh, where that's found. Then I pick up again, again quoting from Honor. Next, in Ephesians 6.12, Paul mentions mighty powers in this dark world who are cosmic potentates unknown before New Testament times. Paul describes these as having universal power. Their realm is darkness. They are in conflict with the God of, of light. The final descriptive statement, evil spirits in the heavenly places, may not depict a new foe, but many further, may further describe the hostile rulers mentioned earlier as well as identify the realm of those foes. Clearly, the struggle is not human, but su- supernatural. I'm going to stop there, and you can read the rest of this. But I would just say to you that why it's so important for us to read the Old Testament is because this battle that is going on is no more clearly revealed than in the Old Testament. So we find, for example, in the book of Job, that the evil one comes before God and God says, have you considered my servant Job? There, Job, there's no one like him. The evil one says, well, that's because you put a hedge around him and nothing ever Difficult comes to Job, but you touch him, and he will curse you to your face, and the battle is on. The battle is on. Will Job remain faithful to God? Will he stand, or will he fall? Will he remain faithful, or will he curse? And then we have all the trials and all the difficulties that Job encounters, everything from losing his family to his own physical health and well-being. But God is in control. God gives limits as to what the evil one is able to do. And of course, ultimately, Job stands and remains faithful to God. We're going to be in passages in 1 Kings that are going to be talking about lying spirits that have been sent uh, to deceive the kings. We're going to be talking about activities of God that are only known by the word of God revealing them. They are behind the scenes. They are taking place in heavenly places, but they're being worked out on this plane. And I keep encouraging you to, as you read these passages of scripture, remember that as these people are going through these events, Job is unaware of what is taking place In heaven, all right? The kings are unaware. We are given a glimpse of what's taking place. And all I'm saying to you is, just as they were unaware in their day, so too we are unaware in our day of the activity of God unless we have this full trust in God's
1: sovereignty and God's providence. You can't see it. But God is at work. God is at work. God is in control of all the events, all the circumstances,
0: everything that we are encountering. Don't lose sight of God's sovereign control and the importance of prayer as it relates to the power that the child of God has to affect change in our society and our world, and of course the gospel, which ultimately changes men's hearts. That changes people's view about the unborn when they come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. When people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ is their Savior, it affects whether or not they're going to go and shoot somebody in a courtyard. We need to understand that the problem of evil is the evil one. And the only way to overcome evil is through the power of God. That's the battle. So don't lose sight of the source of evil and the solution to that evil. Don't look to secondary and third causes, but look to the one who has the schemes, who is at work, who is pulling the strings, if you will. Moving on to page five. Again, it's the responsibility of the believer to put on the whole armor of God. A, the believer is exhorted once again to put on the armor of God. Ephesians 6:13. Therefore, take up the whole army, armor of God. B, it is necessary to put on the armor of God right now. Therefore, take the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil dead. In the evil dead. In the scripture, the evil day is not future. In the scripture, the evil day is not what we think of the last days. Don't jump to the great tribulation. Don't come to think about all of that that's out there. But in the word of God, the evil day is this day. It's the time and period in which we live. And it is the evil day until the Lord returns and establishes his kingdom. And he brings in righteousness and holiness. But we live in an evil day. The evil day is descriptive of the days and age in which you live. Ephesians 5:15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. It's talking to the Ephesians in the day and age in which they live and it's saying not that the days will be evil, the days are evil. The days are characterized by the work and influence of the evil
1: one. Until Christ returns, Satan's activity
0: will continue. Until the day that he's placed in the bottomless pit, the evil one is going to be at work. Don't lose sight of that very basic truth. We fight a spiritual battle. We fight the evil one who's at work. See, the benefit of putting on the armor of God is overcoming the attacks of the evil one. Verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Again, not relinquishing any ground, not giving up any territory, not backing down in our commitment personally and corporately to God himself and his truth. Next, the believer puts on the whole armor of God by means of prayer. You will notice, let me just tell you, that I have not told you what the armor of God is, nor am I going to get to that tonight. We will look at that next time. What the armor is, we're just talking about putting it on, and uh, how do you do that? How do you do that? Well, the answer is through prayer. Through prayer. So, uh, the admonition is repeatedly put on the whole armor of God. Uh, It'd be nice to see it sitting in a corner somewhere, and you go over and you pick it up, and you strap yourself in it, and you're ready to go. Well, Putting on the armor of God is through prayer. Ephesians six eighteen. Praying at all times, in the spirit. Praying at all times, all circumstances. When it's talking about all times, um,
1: it's not talking about every moment of the day. Uh, We need to understand
0: the the phrase, pray without ceasing, doesn't mean praying 24-7, doesn't mean that's all we do all day long is we pray. To pray without ceasing doesn't mean we pray continually, all right? And I've read so many books that talk about, well, how do you pray without ceasing? And they want to make it, it's 24-7, and they talk about, well, you need to have an attitude of prayer, an attitude of dependence, Prayer is an, an attitude. You can't have an attitude of conversation. You, you can't have, a, you know, either you're talking to your wife or you're not talking to your wife. You, you can't have an attitude of I'm talking to my wife. Okay. I, I, I'm in, a, in a, a mindset of which I'm communing with, with my wife though we're not saying anything to each other, but, but we're relating to each other because I have this mindset. No, we're not talking about mindsets. We're talking about activity here. We're talking about prayer. And when it's talking about praying without ceasing, it means there are certain things that we pray for and we continue to pray for them and we pray for them until we die. There are certain things that should never be taken off of our prayer list.
1: The Lord's prayer is
0: a good example. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We should never stop praying for God's name to be hallowed. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We should never stop praying for God's will to be done. We can't pray for it yesterday and say, okay, that covered us for the next ten weeks. No, every, every day we need to be praying. God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. We're not to be praying for the next Six months of supply, and then when that runs out, then I pray again. No, we are to be praying on a daily basis for God's provision, God's protection. All right? So there are things that we need to be constantly praying for, and in all circumstances. In all circumstances. The answer is a universal answer. No matter what the evil is, No matter what the hardship is, no matter what the challenge is, no matter what the temptation is, the answer
1: is always prayer. The answer is always prayer. That's what we need to do. About all the
0: evil that we encounter in all circumstances, in every situation, We're to be relying upon God. We're we're to say, God, we can't solve this. We can't end this. We can't pass a law that will take it away. We can't look to a human being that is going to bring an end to evil. We can't go out and fight a country that's going to bring about an end to evil. There is no end to evil other than the Lord returning and judging evil once and for all and banishing it to eternal hell. So the scripture says, even so, come Lord Jesus. We should be anticipating, we should be longing, we should be praying for the Lord's return, for that is when
1: evil will end. And in the meantime, we're to be using his means of grace
0: to restrain the evil of our day which is the preaching and teaching of God's word which is the faithful adherence in our own lives to God's truth. B, we're to be praying for ourselves. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer. Prayer here is a a very uh, generic word. There are a number of different words translated into English is the word prayer. This just means prayer of all sorts. Intercessory prayer, supplication, whatever kind of prayer that uh, you want to think of, public prayer, private prayer, uh, you name it, we are to be praying. Praying at all times, all situations, different kinds of prayers. Sometimes we are praying silently. Sometimes we are praying publicly. Uh, I love the book of Nehemiah. And if you remember, Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. He is sad uh, for he hears the report of how terrible things are in Jerusalem. The walls have fallen down, etc. He's in ca- captivity. He's the cupbearer of the king. The king says to him, uh, why do you look sad? And it says that he lifted up his eyes, he prayed and said, oh, it's a split second, but before he responds, he's looking to the Lord and said, Lord, I need your help. And he, and he responds and God blesses and it says the good hand of the Lord was, was upon him. Praying that God would give us wisdom, God would give us the right word to say. We're in a conversation. Somebody brings something up. We say, oh man, what do I say to that? Lord, help me. And we speak. The idea here is just this dependence. It's this trust in God. I need Him. I need Him. I need Him. We need Him. And we never get to the point where we don't need Him. And nothing can replace our need of Him. That's idolatry. When we are looking for something other than only what God Himself can provide. That's why idolatry is so easy to fall into. To look for protection, to look for help, to look for provision from some source other than God and God alone. Next, we are to be making prayer requests for our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Ephesians 6.18, praying at all times in the Spirit with prayer and supplication. To that end, Keep alert with perseverance, making supplication for all the, the saints. Uh, a word for supplication is a word for requests. We think of making prayer requests, prayer praises. Well, those are two categories. They're two catch-all. There's more aspects of prayer than that, but it's helpful to think, okay, there's a category of praise and there's a category of requests. Well, supplication's a request. They are things in which we are praying for one another. When we realize people are in situations, circumstances, difficulties, that they need our prayer, and we are praying for them. And then Paul gives an example of his need for prayer. D, Paul asked prayer for himself. The prayer is that he would stand faithful to the work that God had given him to do, that he would not be silenced or become silent. And I chose those words advisedly. To be silenced is to be forced to be silent. To become silent is not that you are forced not to speak, but you become reticent to speak. We live in a society where we're not forced to be silent. We have not been silenced. The church has not been silenced. We can preach the gospel. We can boldly proclaim God's truth. But we can become silent. We can become reserved. We can get to the point where we are ashamed or embarrassed or we think that there's no value, there's no use, or people are going to laugh at us, whatever the case may be, and we just choose not to speak. That is when we silence ourselves. So here is Paul's request, Ephesians 6 19. And also for me, the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. It's rather striking to me that Paul doesn't say,
1: Pray for my release. That's not his request. Again, I I think most people today,
0: that would be the request. Okay, Paul's in prison. Let's pray that he he gets out.
1: Paul's in prison by the will of God. Paul is going to go to Rome. God
0: reveals to Paul that he is going to go to Rome, and he's going to be imprisoned. That is God's intent. He writes to the Philippians, I want you to know, brethren, the things that happened to me have happened to the furtherance of the gospel. Paul writes in the book of Timothy, he said, I'm in, I am in bondage, but God's word is not bound. You can put me in prison, but you can't put God's word in prison. Paul doesn't say, get me out of prison. Paul says, pray for me that words may be given, that he might know what to say. That he might know how to respond to the charges that are being brought against him, to his interaction that he has with the Jewish leaders. As he is proclaiming God's truth, words may be given to me. Secondly, that he might have the courage to say it unreservedly and not mince words. Boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. The word boldly speaks of outspokenness, frankness, plainness of speech, that conceals nothing and passes over nothing. All that coming from, and you see the Greek lexicon that I have, have quoted from in that particular verse. boldly, outspoken, frank, plainness of speech, that conceals nothing and passes over nothing. You see, that's the danger, that we'll leave things out, that there will be things that we don't say, I've been reading uh, a biography written by Steve Nichols on the uh, life of R.C. Sproul. And R.C. Sproul was involved in the 1970s in a project regarding the the inerrancy of Scripture. And he makes a statement that you need to be concerned in doctrinal statements not so much as to what they say, but what they don't say. And he referred to one statement that had just been uh, crafted in that particular period of time in the, the denomination that, uh, at this point, I, I won't mention. But they crafted a statement about the resurrection of Christ but they left out the word bodily. For there were many that didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. They only believe in a spiritual resurrection. Well, the scripture teaches Jesus came forth bodily from the tomb. It was necessary that he did. He conquered sin and death. The scripture makes it clean, clear that if he did not rise from the dead, our faith is in vain. The word bodily is a very important word. And more and more, doctrinal statements are intentionally ambiguous. They are constructed in such a way that so many people can agree to them because they're not precise. They are imprecise. They are intentionally ambiguous so that you can interpret them in a number of different ways. Paul prays for boldness that he would speak plainly, Clearly, unreservedly, not mincing words, not leaving things out. He
1: said, I declare to you the whole counsel of God. We need to be careful not to leave things out. Brothers and
0: sisters, to say that Jesus is the reason for the season means nothing. It might make us feel good, and we think, well, we have a a testimony because I said Jesus is the reason for the season. That doesn't communicate the gospel. That doesn't communicate truth. That doesn't say that Jesus was born of a virgin. That doesn't say that Jesus came to die in our place. It doesn't say that Jesus rose again. I'm not saying that every single conversation we have has to have all the elements of the gospel and everything the word of God says. All I'm saying to you is think about precision. Think about what we leave out. What we say. And it's why it's acceptable to say Jesus is the reason for the season. Because some could say, well that just means love. And love is the reason for the season. We all have a lot of love each other, and we all ought to get along, etc., etc., etc. So, for boldness to speak clearly with frankness. Thirdly, this imprisonment would not be a deterrent for Paul to speak. Paul has been imprisoned for speaking the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in in chains. Paul is still an ambassador. He is still speaking for Christ. He has that liberty. He has that that freedom. In the end of the book of Acts, it talks about how people can come and go even when he's in prison in Rome. Paul talks about how the gospel spreads in the book of Philippians and how he's even able to speak to the Praetorian Guard. The Praetorian Guard were the, the most elite soldiers. And because they were taking care of Paul, he could talk to them. And if there is any church that should understand that Paul's imprisonment did not bring an end to the gospel, it was the Philippian church. For who is their most famous convert
1: in the New Testament? The Philippian jailer. the Philippian jailer, who came
0: to know Christ through Paul's imprisonment.
1: He's an ambassador in chains. But that also creates a
0: temptation for Paul. For he knows the reason that he is imprisoned is because of his speaking for Christ. And so he says, in Ephesians 6.20, for which I'm ambassador in chains, that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Ought to is a necessity. He has been given a command. He's been given a responsibility. He's been given a duty. Paul's responsibility is to take the
1: gospel to the Jew
0: and to the Gentile.
1: And the temptation for Paul will be to give up ground. He has not been silenced, but the temptation will be for him to silence himself. Nobody likes to be in prison, nobody likes to be in bonds.
0: We look at the Apostle Paul. Uh, I'm kind of excited that on Wednesday nights the uh, children are going to be studying Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress is a, is a great book. It is a book that talks about the difficulties, the, the trials that one faces in this Christian life as they're on their way to heaven. The difficulties, the trials, the temptations
1: that they encounter. Written by John Bunyan from a jail cell. A jail cell. John Bunyan spent years of his life in prison.
0: And what you may or may not know is that there was this ongoing offer that whenever he was willing to say that when he is released, he won't preach
1: anymore he could have gone free he was never willing to say that
0: and there were periods of time when they released him and he went right back and preached, he didn't say he wouldn't and they put him back in prison again and he'd be in prison for a number of years and they let him go for a few months and he's right back preaching again and so back into prison he
1: goes what a model What a model. What enabled him to stand? What gave him that kind of strength, that kind of courage? He put on the armor of God. He prayed for God to sustain him.
0: And his dear wife, who would visit him in prison. And so hard to be providing for her children.
1: But she did not beg him to come home. She supported him in his imprisonment. A somewhat modern day
0: example of this very truth. People, we need to stand. And there is so much to draw us away. There is so much to draw our attention, our focus away of absolute dependence upon Christ and a commitment to his word and the teaching of it in absolute truth, not watered down.
1: If we're going to be successful, we need God's strength. And it begins with prayer. And
0: Not next week because it's Fellowship Sunday, but Lord willing, the week after, we'll look at specifically what is this armor that we are to put on. Let's pray. Almighty God, I thank you for your love and your care for us and that you have not left us defenseless. And may we understand that the greatest aspect of this passage is prayer and our need to be dependent upon you. Lord, help us to look to you for the answers to the evil of this world. Convince us, O God, that there is nothing in our
1: strength that we can do to overcome evil. You have to do it. And you've given us your word that you have said, will not return void,
0: but accomplish that for which you have, uh, have sent it and will achieve the end for which you have given it. Lord, strengthen us in our personal resolve not to be silenced and not to be silent. And most importantly, Lord, give us blinders that we're able to resist all of the impact of our culture and our society that draws our attention away from Christ. And may we be wholly devoted to him in an anticipation of his return and the transformation of this world through the power of the Lord Jesus. And so we pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. For it's
1: in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, and we are dismissed.